Welcome to Plodcast, episode 23. Good to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for listening. I want to start by talking about uh, Lenin and Gramsci, uh, two different kinds of Marxists, two different kinds of communists, two different approaches to revolution. Uh, Lenin advocated a, a, a violent approach to revolution. He wanted to Overthrow the, over, overthrow the man, overthrow the system. He was the, um, he was the brains behind the Bolshevik uh, re- revolution in Russia, and his, uh, his approach was direct action. Uh, the Italian Marxist uh, Gramsci, who spent a lot of time in the Slammer, uh, argued for another approach, and his approach was what he called the long march through the institutions. He, what he wanted to do was, uh, basically, um, Lenin wanted to take the uh, take the direct approach and firebomb the West, the how the 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 mansion of the West. He wanted to have the rioters gather around outside it and and burn it down. Uh, Gramsci wanted to send in the termites and and have the termites conduct their long march through the floor joists. Um, so uh, Gramsci's approach, well, initially, Lenin's approach uh, seemed to be the one that, that worked. It, it accomplished uh, its purpose, at least initially, in, the, in, the, in Russia and then in the Soviet Union. Um, and the communist revolution spread. Uh, Eastern Europe also uh, took root in China, places like um, uh, Vietnam and, and Korea. So the, the revolution did spread, and it spread by force. It spread by coercion. It spread by violence. And uh, up until the um, turning point where Ronald Reagan uh, delivered the pinprick when uh, the small island of Grenada uh, had gone communist and then was overthrown, where Reagan ostensibly rescued some medical students and, and uh, toppled the Marxist government there, that was sort of the high watermark of of the violent approach to um, the, the imposition of communism. So, um, and and it started to go rapidly the other way. So uh, when again Reagan said, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall," uh, it was uh, that approach to communism was in crisis. Okay, so. Uh, there was this initial um, victory, and for the better part of a century, the violent Marxists held sway over a good portion of the world. But then the whole thing collapsed. The Berlin Wall came down. The Soviet Union fell apart. Um, uh, there, it, it just came a cropper, as they say. So uh, in the meantime, the approach of... Gramsci has has uh, been much more successful long term. So when Gramsci argued for the progressive um, the progressive left for the um, people who were culturally Marxist, he wanted them to conduct the long march through the institutions, meaning uh, graduate schools, uh, media centers, uh, Hollywood. Uh, law schools, etc. Uh, 
you can see the success of this by how overwhelmingly leftist uh, our our cultural centers are. So you could go to if you went to a um, major New York publishing house or a um, um, a newspaper like the Los Angeles Times or the Chicago Tribune or the or the New York Times, um, you could go a long way before you met a an open Christian conservative working in the newsroom. That's that kind of thing is kind of rare. So Gramsci's approach has resulted in, at least in in North America, it has resulted in what is called flyover country. So you've got red state America and you've got the um, blue state, you know, Europe, Europe without castles uh, section, the left coast and the right coast. And then you've got this, and then of course some pockets like uh, Chicago, Illinois. Um, but for the most part, the middle of the country is um, inhabited by people who are alien to the revolution in both its forms, um, but the Gramscian revolution has taken solid root in all the centers of power. All the, uh, you know, the, the Ivy League schools are leftist. The, um, the mainstream media is overwhelmingly leftist. The, uh, um, the root assumptions in many um, uh, colleges, even Christian colleges, are leftist and so on. And that is the origin of uh, the the most uh, the the most recent manifestation of this would be the the SJWs the social the social justice warriors who are urging us to adopt the standards of cult of this cultural Marxism, um, sometimes called uh, critical theory, sometimes called the Frankfurt School. Um, it's it, the contagion has spread from. Uh, Europeans who fled uh, to to America um, because of the because of the Second World War, and who uh, took up residence like termites in the floor joists and began um, purveying the rot, began doing their thing, and because it's not violent, because it's not straight up the middle, because you don't have two armies facing off against each other with different colored uniforms it's much more difficult to tackle. It's much more difficult to address. Um, a, a lot of Christians need to become much more acquainted with uh, the sneakiness of the progressive left in its, uh, its Gramscian form. We think that because we overthrew um, the Soviet Union, we think that because we, in effect, won the Cold War, uh, we defeated progressivism, we defeated leftism, which we most assuredly did not. We defeated one particular form of it. We, we defeated a particular communist tactic. We did not defeat the communists. Um, over the course of their rampage, uh, the communists were responsible for killing approximately 100 million people. And that's um, that's a number that gets you past the ability to even comprehend it. it it's no longer a list of names, although f f um, in reality, in history, 
those are all names and faces and people with moms and dads and they came from particular places. There were a hundred million victims of communism. And then because of the rot that's going through our educational system, uh, nobody learns about that. Nobody hears about that. And so consequently, uh, people are cheering the socialist um, advance in Venezuela, let's say, or they, they have made uh, Che Guevara into a folk hero, or they uh, admire health care in Cuba, in Cuba. All of this, the, um, the Cuban communist revolution was Marxist in the old school. The reaction to Cuba in the United States is evidence of the potency of the Gramscian approach to uh, the communist revolution. So we need to be those people who love liberty, people who love freedom, people who um, understand that that uh, property rights are the same thing as human rights. Um, are people who need to be much more aware of the tw- of the of the two-pronged attack that progressivism has uh, delivered, or the one-two punch. The violent revolution appeared to have failed, but the, uh, the, the long, slow march through the institutions is not anywhere close to failing yet. Now, by God's grace, we can do something about that, but that's, that's the way it is right now. All right, so here in episode 23, we, uh, we've come to our little book review uh, section. And the book I want to plug um, uh, today is uh, written by a fellow, last name of Duane. And uh, the name of the book is You Have the Right to Remain Innocent. Uh, you Have the Right to Remain Innocent. This is a great little book. It's a short little book. It's not a, not, uh, a massive tome, but it's a, it's a great little book to uh, shake you up, uh, to shake you out of your complacency when it comes to po- any possible interaction that you or any of your kids might have or any of your friends or associates associates might have with the police. And uh, he, he does a, a couple of things. Uh, he shows over and over and over again that um, when someone is uh, volunteers to be questioned by the police, when someone is taken in to be questioned by the police, there is um, that person is in grave peril, um, and that and this is because the uh, courts have consistently upheld the freedom of the police to lie to the person who's being questioned. If if someone is brought in as a person of interest because of a particular crime or because they think he might know something about a, a crime, and he's being interviewed, um, it is not the case. It, basically, if, if someone is being questioned and they lie to the police, they can be held accountable for that, and, and that's as it should be. If, if someone lies to the police, they should be held accountable. But the courts have consistently maintained that the police can lie to you. If you're being questioned by them, the police can lie to you, and there's no accountability at all. So um, this is the um, and this this is the dilemmas. Now, also in recent um, uh, 
in the recent past, it has begun to develop that if you plead the fifth, as uh, if you've watched enough movies or crime shows, you know that someone can plead the fifth, um, meaning that uh, in the, the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution says that someone need not, uh, uh, cannot be forced to incriminate himself. And this, this was meant to be a guard against uh, the old practice of torturing someone into a, or working him over into a confession. So if you beat someone long enough they, and they finally confess, um, uh, the Fifth Amendment was intended to guard against that kind of thing, a person being pressured or coerced or whatever. Um, and uh, Duane, in this book, argues that, or shows that if you, if you simply plead the Fifth and refuse to talk, refuse to answer questions, that's better than being chatty. That's better than, than volunteering information. But that mere fact can be held against you. So uh, it's, it's true that anything you say can and will be used against you in a, in a court of law. That's a, that's a real possibility. But it's also true if you say nothing and just plead the fifth and say, my name is Henry Jones and I plead the fifth, that uh, the, the courts have held that that can be used as evidence that you may be guilty, your, your, um, your pleading of the fifth. What, um, what Duane argues and what he shows and what, I, and what I recommend you do is get this book and read through it and read through it carefully, is he re- recommends that you plead the sixth. Um, and by pleading the sixth, he says that you simply should say, I want an attorney. I, uh, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to be questioned about anything unless I have an attorney present here with me. Um, and given the, given the landscape, given the legal landscape, I think it's crucial that we um, get the, I, I think it's crucial that we get to the point, get into a frame of mind where we understand that the police are your friends sometimes. The police are there for a reason, good reason, sometimes. The police are the police have your back sometimes. But if you want that, if you want to be safe, if you want to be secure, if you want your family to be secure, I recommend that you get this book. You have the right to remain innocent by Dwayne. So we are all hamartiologists. We are we live in a sinful world. And so we are all students of hamartiologists, some as amateurs and others as professionals. So we're continuing our way through the New Testament, looking at different words, different Greek words for uh, different sins. And we come to the, the word that's translated, uh, the verb that's translated, be ashamed. That's the rendering of aiskunomai, and it occurs five times in the New Testament, five times. Again, now, in, in the New Testament, sin and shame are closely related. In the parable of the unjust steward, um, he was ashamed to beg. Luke 16, 3. The unjust steward was ashamed to beg. He'd been fired from his job, and he said, I, you know, I, I'm, I, don't, I basically don't have any employable skills, and I'm ashamed to beg, so what am I going to do? Uh, that's one use. The, the Apostle Paul was not ashamed to use his authority over the Corinthians in Second Corinthians uh, um, 10.8. Paul did not want to be ashamed, Philippians uh, 1.20, 
but rather to have Christ be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. And Peter says that if we suffer for being Christians, we ought not to be ashamed. First um, Peter 4.16 But this is, uh, we're told this with the clear implication that we ought to be ashamed if we get into trouble for our own sins. Verse 15 If that happens, then we should be ashamed. So sin and being ashamed go together. And if you are ashamed uh, and no sin, let's say you're ashamed because someone catches you reading your Bible, or you're ashamed because someone finds out that you pray, um, shame is associated with, in that instance with sin also. But it's not, this, it's not uh, that you were caught doing something sinful that made you ashamed. You were ashamed because you were caught doing something righteous, and that made you ashamed, and that is its own sin. Too many Christians think that they are being persecuted at work uh, quote-unquote, for the gospel, when the real reason is that they're just hard to get along with. Um, and John urges us to abide in Christ so that when he appears, we will not be ashamed. So um, shame is a function of conscience, and it's either a function of a conscience that's working well. If you commit an actual sin and then you you respond by with, with shame, that's the result of a functioning conscience if you are um, if you do something right and someone calls you on it and you're ashamed uh, as Peter was ashamed of being with Christ and denied him um, that's that's a malfunctioning conscience that's that's your conscience not doing uh, not doing right by you at all God in the time of the sickness God in the doctor too You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.